This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I said God. How do you like that? The fault, dear Buddhist is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. We care about your world. My guest today is Rick Halterman. He's the author of Curriculum of the Soul, and he's been a guest on the show numerous times. And he's going to help me a bit with our spring fundraiser, which will be ending this Sunday. And... We still have a ways to go to reach our goal of raising $8,000, and we have a ways to go to reach our other goal of bringing on 25 new donors, listeners who've never donated to the station before, or perhaps haven't done so in many years. So if you haven't yet donated to our Spring Fund Drive, please go to WGDR.org right now or anytime during the show and make a secure and generous donation to help support Central Vermont Community Radio, real grassroots community radio by the community for the community. And thank you so much. And now, on with the show. We started the conversation, and Rick brought up a recent show featuring Henry Keppel, our local death doula. And as often happens, I didn't start the recording right away. Maybe it's because you both live in Vermont. There was this beautiful, relaxed aspect, and she's just so real, and it's the kind of thing, and particularly if we're going to be talking about a fundraiser here for your station, this is the kind of thing I don't hear very often on radio at all, to hear that kind of ease as well as information all in a conference. You know, there can be a performance aspect of people when they're being interviewed because they want to spew whatever it is that was in their book, that kind of thing. She's just talking about this whole terrain of death and her experience and connection. And you are doing the same thing as well from your point of view. And it just flowed beautifully. You know, that's a really wonderful observation. She was totally relaxed. And you're right. Some guests, I think, are kind of nervous because they feel like the weight is on their own shoulders to get their message across. And Anne-Marie 
was very relaxed. She was very comfortable. And it never felt like she had any agenda whatsoever. She was just totally content to be present. And I felt like she was trusting me to lead, which of course helps me to relax and then follow her lead. <laughs> well, and actually, I would say both of you led quite beautifully, and that was what was the joy of that conversation, was that there was this beautiful mutuality that wasn't even that important that whether you had read the book or not outside of asking or, you know, the specifics of, so what is a death doula, that kind of thing. But you were really on the same page from the very beginning. That's pretty rare in an interview. Well, that's that's a question I would like to ask of you. How often or how um, experienced are you in hearing these kind of interviews to make that kind of a statement? When I first came to New Mexico and I got involved with the radio station where I am now, they had a show called Who Are You? And it was a weekly one-hour interview show live. And there was a, a general format, but I would be interviewing people from the community, not necessarily prominent, but just people from the community. And I felt like it was my job to try and dig in and find out not exactly who the person was on the surface, but who they really were underneath. And so I spent a year doing this on a weekly basis, and it was really great fun and covered a lot of bases. It ended rather abruptly because I had this very strong thing about interviewing a 10-year-old and because at that time, I believe that 10-year-old was sort of the last glimpse of unconditional love and, and you know, that, that part of, you know, that early part of one's youth. And I had this amazing young girl on on this show, and, uh, and she had grown up in foster homes, and she had been abused. I mean, just the wildest kind of history that, you know, we oftentimes read about. And it was about a third of the way in the interview, we had a break and she just said to me during the break, she says, Rick, can I just tell my story? And I said, sure, you know, you go right ahead. And she did. And, and the, what happened was that the then owner of the radio station, who's let's just say was not a particularly deep person, he didn't find it particularly compelling. Other people said it was the most amazing thing they ever heard, you know, to hear this wild story coming from a 10-year-old as if she'd already done 30 years worth of therapy with all the traumas of her life. So anyhow, that was my background. So when I hear certain things flow, and I could tell, you know, there have been interviews, and, you know, this happens as well, Tonio, because, you know, you and I have done a balancing together there are certain balancings where it really flows because you can tell someone, and like you are a good example of someone who's already covered a certain amount of ground as a human being so that when we got into the balancing, it really was just sort of like tilting, just a, a little bit of tilting taking place. And you were boom, 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 coming up with all these wonderful forgiveness statements that covered a lot of ground. And it was really quite satisfying to be in that. There was that kind of conversation taking place. But I've also had balancings where literally it felt like pounding into granite to try and get anything coming from a person because they're so defended. And I don't know if you have that same kind of experience with your interviews too, that if someone is particularly defended or is just so so frozen on an agenda, it can be a difficult conversation. You know, you had a recent one, and I can't remember what his name was, but the person who was doing the afterlife vibration. and. Uh -huh. 
that was a nice conversation as well because he was very relaxed and it's clear he'd been in that terrain for a long period of time and you had a lot of great questions to not just sort of expose what he's already done but to go i think a little bit deeper in terms of you know the motivations and how did he you know end up with this gift all that kind of stuff going on which to me is what the great interview is all about is you know i can get enough information from the book itself you know what is driving the passion inside that person and i was certainly feeling that with your conversation with amory as well was there is a passion and that's what's so great about your show is i think you're you're actually you're you're delighted to read whatever the book is but you're i think more interested in what are that passion and then where does that passion align with your your curiosity and maybe even your own passions which is what lights up the whole conversation yeah and i think maybe a simpler way of of saying that is that i so enjoy connecting with the person on that deeper you know level of of mutual interest and and passion for the subject that they're that they're so interested in yeah that's beautiful how you said it so then let me ask you this question since we're really already into it here when was the first time you started noticing this desire this this sort of magnetism towards that connection in this venue um i think i think i stumbled upon it by realizing that it was actually happening and kind of realizing that it was actually happening after the fact, like when I would listen to the recording and I would realize, wow, that actually worked. Or I'm not not actually sure because in the moment, it's interesting. I can have different um, kind of inner sense of the interview or the conversation at different times, like sometimes, I just feel like the conversation is flowing beautifully and then afterwards I'll listen to it and then I'll <laughs> I'll be self-critical and find lots of things that I did that, that I that I missed or I should have done and then there're times when I do an interview that I feel like I missed things in during it and I felt dissatisfied and and a bit on the frustrated side of it during it and then afterwards I'll listen to it and I go, well, that, that actually turned out a lot better than I thought. So, so I, I find that my own judgment is not necessarily accurate all the time. And I'm not sure what that's about. It could be the space I'm in at different times. You know, we're so, our experience is so subjective and it's so conditioned by very subtle and perhaps more gross things going on in our life at the moment or or the environment around us or so it's like everything is always so different or can be so different and you know you've described and this is not to create a tangent per se but i'm just you know giving a, a different sort of perspective on it you've kind of described the soul quite beautifully in terms of the elusiveness that where i thought you know say in one of my shows like oh wow that really happened and and you know got virtually no response whatsoever from the audience and other shows where I'm like whatever and people are calling going Rick this is just one of the best that it's that elusive quality of the soul that who knows and and maybe because I was just speaking to my partner about this just yesterday that there're all these other other energies taking place around us and it could be around like a conversation that you're having with a particular author and 
who knows what those energies are doing in that particular moment. And it may feel really great in a conversation, but it isn't until later that you realize like, oh, that felt forced or something. And then other times where you felt like, well, that was kind of nonchalant. And it turned out it was really pretty happening. Mm -hmm. And I just want to add something because you were talking about your own um, interviewing experience and my experience of you is that you I think you're a wonderful interviewer as well because you you know during our conversations you will very often interject questions to me kind of counter interviewing me and I think you ask wonderful questions you really come from a deep place and you're seeking to explore depth in me and I can just see how that would be a wonderful experience for others if you were to branch out and maybe do that again if you ever found the opportunity to do that because I think you're also an excellent excellent uh, deep interviewer. Well, thank you for the appreciation, Tonio, because I haven't done this really in some time except, you know, with you. But I think there's probably something that we haven't really verbalized together, which is that, and maybe this is, I don't know if this is how it is for other people or not, but that that longing for connection is really, I think, part of the point of us being on this planet that, you know, we can get stuck in our heads, we can get stuck doing whatever we're doing um, and not necessarily be connected to the world, but it's connecting with each other and with the world is how we live a life that would be more full, whatever like that. And it was very easy for me, at least in talking with you to find a connection because there's clearly you have a similar kind of passion, just like you were mentioning earlier, that connection to your interviewees so that something something new gets created in the conversation through that connection. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. And, you know, we come from connection. So it's only natural that we would seek, in fact, always seek connection, you know, if we're relaxed enough and not not traumatized in a way that that sends us reeling in the opposite direction, which is a which is a pretty unfortunate thing that's actually very widespread in pretty much all our lives at times. Yeah, and I think it's one of the beauties of your show, Tonio, if you think about because I've been thinking in terms of these wild events taking place on the planet. I was thinking of the Krishnamurti quote, and I have that somewhere in, in the curriculum of the soul, but it's a general quote, which is basically that war is a spectacular reflection of the kind of internal divisiveness that's going on in the planet. And when you do a conversation like you did with Anne-Marie or with others that you have done in your show, you're eliminating that divisiveness through that connection. And that's exactly what the world needs right now. So thank you. It's what we need right now. And it's just, and the thing is, you're not being overt or anything like, well, we're going to make this whole unified vision on the planet, anything like that. You're just showing people that connection just feels so much better. Yeah. The Krishnamurti quote reminded me of another quote that I don't remember who said it, but that war is a failure of the imagination. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that's a sad reflection of the times that we're living in right now is 
that I think this linear analytical world we live in, I've just been re-listening to some interviews between Michael Toms and John O'Donohue, and John O'Donohue really makes a big point about this, that it really is doing uh, quite a number, this analytical world, the, the neon bright light of analysis, as he says, to killing imagination. And it's really very sad because we see the evidence everywhere. Unfortunately, we do. And so many people are are completely trapped in that world. Yeah. And, you know, it's an, it's an interesting thing, this evolution. And I guess, I don't know if this creates momentum within our individual lives. You know, in the, the radio show that I do, and that's on a commercial station, I have the wonderful gift of people that have been utterly supportive of me. And in fact, I just completed last Thanksgiving 20 years of doing that show. And they have never put any kind of constraints on me. So here I am mixing music, i.e. jazz, for the most part, and not mainstream jazz, with poetry under a theme, like I did a theme only a few weeks ago of the obsolescence of war. And it was very, very intense doing that show. Heavy, heavy, heavy duty poems. It was just wonderful. And I thought, wow, where else could I do this but radio, you know, to do? And, you know, it's interesting because as an interviewer, I think we don't really go after like that very, I love when, when Anne-Marie was talking about the idea that as a death doula, there's a certain kind of transparency that one is trying to achieve. So you're not getting in the way of this process that a human being's going through in their last moments on the planet. As an interviewer, I think we're asking for or trying to achieve a certain kind of presence to create that connection. Because if we're totally invisible, then somebody's just going to be spewing for an hour, an hour and a half. And that can be or maybe maybe not be that interesting. So here we are, you know, like with my show, I do try and become almost transparent because I really, you know, I don't do that typical jazz thing of like, this was recorded in 1968, you know, at the Englewood, New Jersey, you know, studio, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. I don't get in any of that. It's just, I'll, I'll just announce the music, read a poem, and we're right back into it because I'm trying to create a certain setting so that maybe somebody can reflect in the course of hearing all this whatever it is that I'm trying to do, if it even succeeds at all. Wow, that reminds me of the way I did my music show. I wouldn't even announce the music that I played. I spoke as little as possible. In fact, I think the only things I ever said were the station IDs. Because <laughs> <And laughs> you had to. <laughs> almost, almost all of them I had pre-recorded so that I never even had to open my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> because there was a kind of a, a flow or stream of consciousness that I was engaging with in the flow of the music that was happening because I didn't have anything pre-planned. I would just be listening to the music that I had just chosen. And from there, I would get an inspiration for the next piece. And I would go, you know, kind of leaping from stone to stone. And it was a continual, undisturbed stream of consciousness kind of flow of music. And I just didn't want to break that up. And I know that some people, including me, sometimes really want to know who that artist was and who that music was, you know, what, what the name title of so that I could go find it. But when I'm doing my show, I just, I get so immersed in that, that flow. Well, it's beautiful what you're talking about, Tonio, because I, I think the idea with that kind of show is that, and I think this is maybe the whole point, because 
we're really ultimately talking about, you know, this, whether it's the art of conversation, the art of mixing music, all that, to take somebody to another place. And of course, it's it's up to them whether they want to go there or not. And I can't predict whatever I'm doing on my end. I'm just doing my thing. And I don't even think about an audience, anything like that. And then where they want to go is up to them. And then on occasion, there was a gal called a couple of weeks ago. She called up and said, whatever you're doing, don't stop doing it. She said, I've never heard radio like this before. And I said, great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And I think it's the same thing with you, Tonio, and your show. Whatever you're doing, particularly when you get to those lovely interviews like with Amory, just don't stop doing what you're doing because it's working out really quite beautifully. And it's very much unlike, and this is in support of your particular station, it's very unlike mainstream radio, which tends to be sort of the NPR you know, three to five minute kind of thing. And let's get to it. And, you know, what are your credentials? Blah, 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 blah. And, you know, personally, I'm a little tired of all that. I want to hear real people. And your show gives us that window that just doesn't happen very much. And particularly in a polarized world. Mm -hmm. And I would say that that pretty much all the shows, or at least all the, the homegrown local shows on our station, are done in that spirit that people are really doing their own thing and they're given free reign to create their shows the way they want to and to express or to put out whatever it is they're moved to do, however they're moved to do it. And again, as you said, it's up to the listener to enjoy it or not. You know, sort of that thing of you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. <laughs> Sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> but it, isn't this the beauty of community radio? And I think you are one of those stations that much more so than the commercial station that, that I'm involved with, because I'm really kind of an anomaly in the course of my station. They mostly play AAA music. And, and there's a certain point where it just starts to sound rather corporate to me. You know, and, and it's not music that I would be listening to generally, but I know it's not going to have much sustainability. But in the case of a community station, you're getting to hear this kind of interesting, at least for the people who want to participate, cross-section of the community, whether you you know like people's taste or not, and you really get a, a, a larger sense of the community and is there connectiveness going on, is there not? But it's so, I don't know, maybe democracy in its really purest form in terms of anybody who wants to do it, and no, you're not going to get paid. And you get to share your passion with the community and let's see how it works out. And then hopefully, and as you know, like as being a music DJ, you still have to have a certain level of professionalism. So there's not going to be, you know, big spaces of dead air or, or you know, saying something dumb, that kind of thing. So I just so admire the fact that you're still with a community station, because to me, that's the closest thing we have to pure radio left in America. Yeah, and that's the only kind of radio that I could have anything to do with or that I could even stand to listen to because commercials to me are like drinking poison. I just can't <laughs> take it. I can't take it. My system just can't listen to that stuff. I mean, I even have a hard time listening to underwriting announcements. Oh, yeah. In fact, I, I heard a recent, there was an interview with Ralph Nader and he was talking about the original law that he helped pass back in the 60s, which had to do with public radio. And the whole point was to get rid of all the commercials and everything that was on AM radio and come up with the format, the very format you're talking about, which is no pollution, just give us 
whatever it is, whether it's going to be music interviews, whatever, and none of this underwriting stuff that happens now, which really is every break now on public radio. Exactly. And and sometimes multiple underwriters. And I, I, I've been in my, you know, I, I have a subversive streak in me and I wanted to create a satire of a show where <laughs> you go on, you announce the show and you, you spew out a list of the underwriters and then you say, and that's it for the show. <laughs> that's all the time we have for today. Join us next week for whatever the show is supposed to be. <laughs> and, Antonio, my version of that was when I first started doing this show here, here in New Mexico in Taos, that uh, I'd potted down all of the, uh, the pots that were related to when the commercials aired. So they were airing at half the volume of the regular, the music and the poetry and all that other stuff. Because I was like, you know, for me, this is how I am. And this can even happen when I hear a DJ and there is actually kind of a community station, although it's going, going commercial, but it's all volunteer. But there are DJs here that simply have no training whatsoever. And I've heard, you know, for instance, Fela Kuti played right next to what, Mahalia Jackson, something like that. And I literally am diving across the room to change the station because my emotional body has just like hit the wall and going, what just happened here? I just heard this just in the last week. I was like, this is too horrible to even contemplate what just happened and I'm out of here. So anyhow, my old thing was just potting everything down because I was like, I want people to, you know, like if commercial comes on, they feel like it's pollution, they're gonna turn off the whole show. And what's the point of that? Mm -hmm. And that kind of radical juxtaposition can work if that is a common feature of the show. But if it's a one-off kind of jarring transition, then yeah, I get what you're saying. Oh God, and you know, and you know, I think I have an essay about it in that last book that I wrote, which you know talks about you know I attribute it to the iPod that has that shuffle feature. And I think that's actually become kind of a thing out there that people think it's just a-okay to play the B-52s next to, say, a Chopin Nocturne. And I'm like, no, actually, it's not okay. <laughs> there are certain things that should be going next to each other because it's kind of, for me, like an emotional violence takes place. Well, I have to say that some of my favorite radio shows are the ones that are extremely eclectic, that are continually taking these wild swings from very disparate musical genres. But you expect that. Yes. You, and if you're choosing to listen to it, you actually enjoy that. So it's not a shock. Yeah, yeah. I and I'm with you that when there's somebody who truly is exploring and, and at the same time still knows how somehow to create a flow, that's the deal is a flow that then it's really quite fascinating. But in the cases that I'm mentioning, these are people that don't understand. And I think it's really getting lost a lot from this old, this, you know, now I'm admitting my age, this old thing about radio, that there's certain DJs that can really like, when you are doing that thing, it's actually, it's exactly how I still am doing my radio show, Tonio, which is, People are always like, well, Rick, don't you have like a playlist in advance or anything? I said, no, 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 no. You know, this is like jazz improvisation. I'm, first, I have to figure out what the jumping point is, that initial piece of music. And then based on what's happening in that piece of music is going to start telling me, at least emotionally, 
you know, musically, where would be the next, what are the options for the next place to go? So it's always really on the fly from tune to tune to tune like you were doing. And when it works, you know, there's a certain kind of flow happens. I even knew a guy, this is fascinating, a DJ up in Avon, Colorado, and he had these books of segues, Tonio, so that he had like a whole book where, for instance, if a tune ended, say like a Led Zeppelin tune, um, and it ended on the note of D, that he would know, like I think Blackbird by the Beatles begins on the note of D, and he could actually get these tunes to flow into each other seamlessly because he had worked out this whole catalog of, you know, the, you know, whether it was a feel, whether it was the actual tone of the song, you know, the key that it was in, that sort of thing. And I was like, that was so fascinating. He had gone to that extent. You know, that reminds me of about 30 years ago when I was at this radio station and there were students at Goddard College. And there was one guy in particular, his name was Steve, but his radio name was Triple S, Super Scratching Steve, because he played, <laughs> he played dance music and he would scratch. And one of the things that I picked up from him is when he would do dance music, he would sync up the beats of the songs for the transitions. Yes, yes. And you can do that with those professional Technics turntables. Yeah. You can actually adjust the speed so that you can do that. And it was so beautiful the way that he did that. And that really inspired me to be very conscious of those transitions where I would just as seamlessly as possible transition from one song into another. And for me, a really successful transition was when you could not tell that you had actually done the transition, that it still felt like you were still in the same piece of music. It's quite brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think particularly in here now I'm talking from a dancer point of view that when one gets into that sort of circumstance and there isn't a break between tunes from, you know, like say how blues band would play or something like that. I think, and this is maybe goes back to like the Grateful Dead in sort of popular and rock and roll music, that there was this long flowy thing that once you got into this groove, you were just sort of locked in until basically you were either exhausted or who knows whatever happened, but there were no in, in breaks. And now we're into almost that kind of like that Sufi thing of, you know, the, the swirling dervishes, you know, to get into that whole other kind of state of mind because there are no interruptions. Well, just getting into that state of mind where it doesn't matter how long it lasts because yeah. it's timeless when you're yeah. in there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was really very hip, you know, that those DJs are doing that and still doing that, because I imagine if I went to Las Vegas right now in those big clubs, those DJs get paid quite a bit of money to do make it as seamless as possible, that word that you were just using. And what a very interesting experience, because, you know, it's like I see this at the Pueblo sometimes. The Pueblo has a powwow, at least they haven't in the last few years because of the, the pandemic, but I think they may start again this year. And once the drumming starts, uh, the drumming just continues on. And it, it's a long period. And it's so interesting because when I see the dancers that are in their full regalia, they're absolutely stunningly beautiful. And they're stepping onto the ground, the actual dance ground. There's this interesting little transformation that takes place because they're then in that whole energetic of the drumming and they're going straight into their motions, 
of whatever particular dance that they're doing. And I love watching that transformation because they know that once you step in that space, you can't be just a standing human. You have to be a dancing human. Yeah, as I said back in the disco, there was a song where there's no parking on the dance floor. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I've always loved that line. That's so great. <laughs> and I know it's a little frustrating for me because they're they're starting to do concerts out here again. I don't know if that's the case in Vermont. And, you know, there's like, for instance, there's a one coming that's very nearby where I live. And it's the band Government Mule, you know, great the Warren Haynes, great guitarist is in it. And, and I'm curious that if it's going to be indoors, and there's this tendency, particularly for younger people, that they want to be shoulder to shoulder. And I understand that energy. But from a dancing point of view, it's not very useful. You always want a little bit of space to do whatever you're doing. So I'm hoping they're going to do the show outdoors rather than indoors, because indoors it'll just be kind of all squished up. And, the, you know, I guess when I was young, that felt good, whatever. But now that I'm older, it's like I want the room to dance and really enjoy the music. And that's just my way of responding to it. Mm-hmm. And we've been talking about the magical flow that occurs in these unique environments. And community radio really is one of those unique environments where the programmer, the producer of the show, gets to create their own thing, whatever it is. Yeah. And that's a wonderful magic. And speaking of magic, the magic of community radio, it's our spring fundraiser. We're encouraging listeners to go directly to our website, wgdr.org, and make a secure donation to support this kind of magical environment of community radio. And our goal for this spring fundraiser is to raise $8,000 between April 3rd and April 17th. And you know, Tonio, if I'm not mistaken, because you are community radio, that you know, there was a certain point where I got disenchanted with certain large nonprofits in America, realizing that whatever money I was contributing was paying for, who knows, like 60% of whatever I contributed was just paying for all of the administrative and all the, you know, the marketing and blah, 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 blah. And it really wasn't going to helping the people that I thought. The beauty about community radio, and, and tell me, you, you can give me the particulars, but you probably don't have much in the way of a paid staff. It's really about utilities. And then if you have to pay a mortgage on a location, that kind of thing. You, I know you all got a new transmitter at the end of last year that it's so minimal in terms of money being wasted. It's really going directly for this idea of community radio being out there for people to listen to. Well, actually, I'm glad you mentioned that because... We have made a huge transition in the last couple of years. At one point, we had two full-time management positions plus four half-time staff positions. And now we have one single half-time management position that's paid. And that's it. The rest are volunteers. So we've gone from, to add that up, that's like we've gone from four full-time positions to one half-time position. So yes, almost all of the money, the overwhelming amount of the money that you give to the station goes directly into the station. Yeah. Not to administration or management. 
You're just like a New York hedge fund that came in and cleaned it all up, Tonio. Congratulations. <laughs> That's beautiful. I really love, you know, that that and I think one who does contribute can really feel good about the fact of your money is being well spent. It's not being wasted. Uh, if you consider the kind of waste that we're so good at as Americans, you know, just food waste, you know, the amount of energy waste. What was a Buckminster Fuller once had had talked about if you added up the amount of horsepower from automobiles sitting at traffic lights around the country, it would be enough to power, you know, like within one day, it'd be enough to power the whole country, you know, for a year, you know, that kind of thing. We're so amazing. This is a circumstance contributing to this community radio station where there's no waste happening whatsoever. It doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. And especially when it's in the service of community media, which is really fostering a conversation within the community. Yeah. From members of the community to members of the community. Yeah. And it's a very natural, spontaneous, grassroots kind of dynamic going on. And I think it's it's especially important in these days where most people are locked into their their cell phones and they're just flipping through social media on a level that is virtually untethered to reality, if not completely so. <laughs> yes. Not to mention all the corporate stuff going on around it, all the commercialism and everything else that's bombarding and seducing everyone all the time. It's amazing to me when I first heard of this a few years ago, Tonio, that people were actually getting their news feeds from social media rather than whether it would be from the BBC or New York Times, whatever, that I was thinking, wow, to me, that would be the equivalent of me trying to get nutritious food at the convenience store. It's like, why? Well, <laughs> it made no sense whatsoever. And, and you know, and back to your community idea that you were just mentioning, I hear this like sometimes in spiritual, in my own spiritual community, that certain people love to use the word community without understanding the idea of connection. And it seems to me this very enterprise of community radio is doing the thing that I would be longing for, which is creating community through whether it's a connection of conversation or music or however somebody is doing a program, that's how real community gets created. Mm -hmm. So tell me, Tonio, in relation to your station, because I know that you spend a lot of time reading and preparing for your own interviews, and you have, of course, your own life, your own garden, all that um, at your house. How much time do you even have to get to listen to your own station? Oh, I actually listen to a lot of radio because you know I don't watch television. I'm not, I'm not distracted. I don't have a cell phone. I don't participate in social media. So my media of choice is the radio. And I, I listen to a fair amount of my own radio station. I also, I'll confess, I do listen to our local public radio station, particularly on the weekends. They have some very good shows on the weekends. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but Radio is my my medium of choice, and I I hear that some people say that radio is no longer a relevant form of media, but I actually think that it's becoming increasingly more and more relevant as the world around us becomes more and more superficial 
and untethered from reality that the ability to tune into a local radio station and hear news perspectives that go beyond the superficiality of the mainstream and actually dive deeper into issues and and bring on people whose passion and true interest is to explore and investigate these issues that we are dealing with in the world around us. Um, I find that to be extremely relevant. You know, I remember on television, you know, the news, it's soundbite media, soundbite <laughs> news, soundbite information. Yeah. I could not thrive on that. It's just like that analogy that you made of trying to get good food at a convenience store. Right, right, right. Hey, you know, it's interesting, Tonio, because I, and I, I support everything and agree with everything you're saying, because I realized a number of years ago, because it was, I don't know how many years ago, I finally, I think it was in the 90s, I gave up television. I even had a bumper sticker on that car that I owned at the time that said, kill your television. Um, but anyhow, I realized the thing about television, when I stepped back far enough to look at it, I was like, wow, so interesting, this medium that has all these images, it actually steals your imagination. And it's unlike reading or radio where you, when you're reading or you're listening on the radio, your imagination really has a chance to almost get untethered in the sense of, you know, like conjuring up what is it that the words are telling you or, you know, who are these people talking or where does it take you? You know, that kind of thing. Once the image gets concretized, it really takes away for me personally, part of the experience. Uh, I'm not quite so interested in it as much. And I've always had, at least since I was a little kid, that, you know, way back with, and it was really AM was, this was prior to the, the prevalence of FM radio. I was there in the Hudson Valley and I could tune in to WKBW in Buffalo. And they had this folk show called The Inside Out. This was on Sunday nights and I'm on the other side of the state and I'm getting clear reception. It was amazing. And that was where I was introduced to the music of Bruce Coburn and Joni Mitchell, Tom Rush and Judy Collins. And it really opened up my whole world to something I couldn't have done locally because nothing like that was happening, certainly not happening in the New York City stations that we could get as well. So there was a whole magic for me of like, wow, I'm getting introduced to a whole nother world within the convenience of my own bedroom hearing this. And it literally enlarged my whole life. I love that you brought that that issue of how television with all its visuals and the way they they calculate and create the visuals to literally bombard your system so that there's no space for your own imagination and your own creativity to enter into the picture. And what radio does, it just occurred to me from listening to you, is that it really allows us to connect and engage with the invisible world where our imagination arises out of and is also the realm of the soul so that we can engage at that level when we're hearing about what's going on in the world around us rather than just getting viscerally bombarded by imagery that kind of paralyzes us in a, in a way, neurologically. Yeah, yeah. Well, in your show in particular, Tony, you add this other dimension too, which is that you're not really going after the mainstream conversation as far as, you know, the person's new book about what happened in the White House four years ago like that. You, you don't do that. 
And this has to do, of course, we've talked about this before with the own fringe elements. Think of your parents and then you growing up in the streets of New York and then coming up to Vermont. You bring this whole other thing. And it was, you know, it's interesting. It was just yesterday I sent a poem to this was the daughter of my partner. And, and the daughter just had a close college friend who had committed suicide. So I sent her Stephen Dunn's poem called Sweetness. And in the gist of the poem is that, you know, often with these great griefs that happen in our lives, there is a sweetness that will come, will show up unannounced. And he says at the poem, you know, he says, and I don't care, you know, where it's come from. I'm just so happy it showed up at all. So in essence, I was telling my partner, I said, you know, I'm just trying to remind her of this energetic world. And I think you're a lot of your interviews Tonio, are, are the areas where people aren't normally thinking. And there are real energies taking place here. Like, for instance, when you did the afterlife vibration, for those people that are interested in communicating somehow with somebody who's on the other side, you don't hear that in the normal media at all, that kind of thing. And for some people, they may want to settle out some trauma, you know, get some kind of closure, whatever, you know, through this particular thing. And thank God that you're there to even offer that possibility for those people that want to get healed in that way. Yes. And again, you're stimulating insights for me in what you're saying that, you know, what's happening in the conversations that I'm having is, at least in some of the conversations, is that we're connecting on that invisible level. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what you actually enjoy so much. It's like, it's kind of intangible. It's hard to put your finger on, but you know it when you feel it. Yes, 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 yes. And, you know, and I, I think that with, with the very thing we've been talking about, you know, this whole idea of television and that kind of media, which really is there to appeal to that John O'Donohue quote, which had to do with the neon bright world of analysis and literal thinking, you know, it's really quite programmed in that direction. And, you know, whether it's through my books, but I think it's through also a lot of the authors that you interview, there are these other things taking place on the planet and there are other energies that we're interacting with all the time. And the more that we can pay attention to that and weave all of this together, including the analytical world, I don't want to disparage that completely because it's really quite useful when it comes to, say, fixing the brakes of my car or something like that, that when we can include all of these other energies, it could even be the energy of a conversation from one of your shows, that I think we end up weaving a larger fabric. Um, you could call this the fabric of the soul of, in terms of our experience of being here on the planet. And what a rich experience. I think we talked about this in our last conversation. Whether it's the good, the bad, or the ugly, it gives us this amazing experience of being alive. And actually, you know, and actually I, I loved, I got to that point in the interview with Anne-Marie where she was talking about how she had learned the most through the painful experiences of her life. Exactly. And I know that's true for me. It's like, if you go through life just experiencing, you know, an even keel and everything is fine and dandy, there's no motivation to grow. But when you experience suffering, it inspires the desire to grow within oneself and it inspires the compassion to care about others who you see suffering around you. Yes. Yeah. Which, which are the deepest, most cornerstone elements of the human condition. I think, or 
human being. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Although, you know, it's interesting because I have I have a couple siblings that I've mentioned previously, and they've gone through their own version of traumas, one with the amputated leg, the other one with three major depressions and a heart event. And the interesting thing, for whatever reason, and, and there's no judgment here, they haven't chosen to walk through this very door we're talking about, Tonio. So it's curious to me, and I think we, we've touched on this in the past, what is it that gets one person, for instance, and who knows what the event might be in their life, to really say, I must change my life, and the other person to say, the sooner I can get through this, the better, because I just want to get back to like this whole thing with the paradigm right now. How quickly can we get back to normal? It's like, well, normal's history. You can forget that. Uh, we're, we're in a whole new world, and it keeps changing all the time. I don't know the answer to that. What are your thoughts? I don't know the answer to that either. I mean, I wonder about that myself, and I periodically ask people, like some of my guests who have brilliant perspectives about the world and the issues that we're facing, and I'll ask them, and, and they generally say, well, I don't know either. This is, this is the great conundrum of human existence, of life itself. You know, one of the things that I think we have to come to terms with in our lives as human beings is the experience of this kind of paradox, this kind of conundrum of not being able to find a solution to many things, that we have to learn to live with the problems or the challenges that we're faced with, kind of like you know, living with the question rather than always seeking to resolve the tension by finding an answer, which I think we're both discovering and talking about there isn't always an answer. In fact, often there is no answer and that it's only by living the question that an answer can organically unfold in our lives or in the world around us. And it's beyond our own ability and agenda to solve things or to find an answer. Yes. And, you know, I, I put this in an email in which I was sort of distilling you know, the work of the community and just saying, you know, ego eyes are always looking to fix things. And a lot of times you know, that's useful when it comes to material and utterly functional things like fix the plumbing, that sort of thing. But I said, you know, soul eyes, on the other hand, they don't look outward. They look inward for different perspectives. And the perspective might be the very thing you just mentioned, which is, well, I just have to get comfortable with this mystery because if I don't, I'm going to keep trying to fix it, and then I'm just back into the suffering samsara mode, and what's the point of that? But I have to also admit that I always want to fix things and make things better. So I, I'm always experiencing that, that inner challenge within me, that inner contradiction within me, and then realizing that really the best course I can take is to actually relax into the challenge and into whatever the issue that's arising in me. And to trust that it's kind of like when you're working on a project and you run into a wall and you're just stymied and you can't find a way through, that the best thing to do is to just relax, you know, do something completely different, lay down on the couch and take a nap or do something, just go for a walk in the woods. Yes. yes. And, and then the inspiration will come if you're really passionate and engaged in the solving of this issue or or deeply caring about the issue, not so much the agenda to solve it, but deeply caring about it. 
uh-huh. and deeply connected to that challenge, then I think things naturally unfold and, and arise. It's like a gift if we're willing to allow it to come rather than trying to make it happen. Yeah, and, and you're describing beautifully, Tonio, this is kind of the soul way of dealing with it, which is, you know, and I use slightly different terms. When something comes up for me, like what you're talking about, I put it kind of on the internal clipboard and just leave it on the clipboard. And like you were saying, say, go for a walk in the woods, go play music, do what, do whatever I need to do, and then see if it'll show back up later in terms of another form as far as oh, I hadn't even thought about that before. Sort of takes the pressure off in a way. Now, it's one thing, of course, you know, the one area of Western medicine that I have great admiration for are the ERs. And I think it's where Western medicine truly, truly exceeds that when it comes to trauma care, they know how as best as they can to get somebody, you know, like who's been in a car wreck and to get them still breathing and living and doing all that kind of thing. And in that sense, there's that fix it thing that's really been quite useful. But then when you start thinking about the rest of Western medicine, which is still trying to fix other things, which may in fact be only physical, but may also have something to do with the psychological, the emotional, the spiritual, all these other levels that, you know, are part of who we are, the different bodies we inhabit. It has sometimes success and other times not great success. I mean, I was just asking my partner who's vaccinated and I was saying, so are you going to get your second booster shot? And she said, no. She said, you know, four shots in one year. She said, that's not a vaccination. That's more like a flu shot. And so it was like, well, yeah, interesting because they're looking for the fix it thing with the pandemic. And that actually hasn't exactly turned out for it. Yeah, well, there are great mysteries that's still found <laughs> in our world. You know, scientifically, we're still pretty young. Yeah. You know? And we we think we know a lot, but in the greater scheme of the universe, we know such a tiny, 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 tiny bit of, <laughs> of all that is. And, <laughs> and you know, it's interesting, Tonio, between Amory and also, remember when you had Dr. Patricia Musham on, that they both said a very, very similar thing that when it came to pain and the sort of suffering that we can go through physically in our bodies, they both talked about the idea of actually, whether you want to say leaning in or getting closer to the pain to really feel into that pain, they both had a very similar thing to say that they found that when they could had the courage basically and curiosity to go that far into the pain that they were able to find relief on the other side. Yes, exactly. And hasn't that been your experience? Oh yes, that for me, the confronting of whatever these things are inside of me, you know, like what's that wall I've just put up, you know, like the despair we talked about in our last conversation, because there was last week, there was a point and I can't remember all the circumstance, but I was grieving about everything, Tonio. I mean, every day was tears, but it also included not only for the suffering that is happening in Ukraine, for instance, but also tears, the kind of tears of joy of like, wow, you know, I'm with a partner who loves me and 
my little child self that still believes, you know, on some level that I was unlovable, you know, based on whatever my background was in my own family, that there was just tears and tears and tears. And I just said, like, well, just keep them coming because we're going to just keep going through it. We're going to go through all the stations on the train track and where this is going to end up. I don't know. But it just felt great because it was all release. And we're going to let those tears melt all these barriers. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I can't stop the war, although I certainly pray for peace, for instance. But then, like I was mentioning about that Krishnamurti quote before, I was wondering, because this was a Robert Waterman idea. He said, you know, this was years ago when he was talking about Israel and Palestine. He says, they're fighting a war as a manifestation for our own, you know, internal struggles. And this is what other people are doing on the planet. And until we can resolve our own internal problems, then these wars elsewhere, they'll just keep going on. So that to me is an amazing motivation of, so where do I have to stop my own internal wars if I really want to see war stop elsewhere on the planet? Right. It makes it very personal. Absolutely. That, that's like the core of that principle of taking 100% responsibility for yes. everything that's going on in the world around us because it all exists within the realm of our own perception. And as you're saying, whatever's happening inside of me contributes to everything that's happening in the world around me. And, and it's a, a sad thought. And, you know, I, I kind of go through this, you know, in, in the last book, which is that you know, the general idea that you and I have talked about is that we live in, I think, governments, of course, like this. Churches love this. You know, any anybody in authority loves the idea of keeping people in a fear-based mode. And if you're in a fear-based mode, then, you know, it, of course, limits your possibilities out there. And as all the great prophets in the past, whether you're going to talk about Muhammad, Jesus, Krishna, whatever, you know, of those people in the past that it's really a love-based mode is where we want to get to. And, you know, there's a lot of discernment involved here because there's, you know, thousands and thousands versions of love. You know, we don't want to get into the new agey thing. But, you know, I did a show a few months ago, Tonio, right after Valentine's Day, because there's romantic love, of course. But then the week after I said, you know, I really should have done this show first, which is a show on self-love. And it's something we're never taught. And, you know, I was mentioning this to my partner also just recently. There's this one thing that's never taught in any of our schools or universities in our culture, which is this idea of this home place inside. And it's a place that usually gets discovered through solitude, but it could be done. You know, you could have teachers that can at least point the direction, but it's very personal and very idiosyncratic. And once that place is discovered, then it's that much more difficult for you to be taken out of your loving because you always know you have this almost like a reference point, a visceral reference point of knowing where there is peace, where everything is okay, and there is a general, if nothing else, you're going to start with loving yourself before you go out and loving the world. And it's amazing to me that we still don't have anything in our educational system that even approaches this idea of how do we establish this first? Yep, that is so, so important. I mean, to me, that place, that place inside of us, deep inside of us, is actually the portal 
that connects us to everything else. Yes. Yeah, and at the same time, it's still so, I was in bed the other night and reading and, and my partner was next to me and I said, wow, this is the first time in my life that my partner and I were reading the same book. It's Gregory Boyle's new book. You know, Gregory Boyle is a guy who is the Jesuit priest that has Homeboy Industries out in Los Angeles. And, you know, he talks about all of his work with gang members. And anyhow, the, the first chapter is really talking a lot about this term God and really trying to clean up a lot of the kind of pollution that's connected to that world, you know, the guilty God, you know, the repressive God, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it was so fascinating because when we talked about it later, I said, you know, this is so personal, whether you even want to use that word or not, because the word has been so abused. It is so personal how one has a connection to that kind of energy. And basically the way Gregory Boyle is looking at it, he says, this is the love that's inside of you. And you have to be in touch with that if you're going to be going out in the world to have this other kind of experience in terms of, and it isn't to fix the world per se, but it's just how good it feels to help others who really want the help but just don't know how how to do it. And it's out of that place that we can actually take genuine responsibility for the world around us. Yes, yes. So it's so beautiful. But yeah, this home place. And tell me, Tonio, for you, because I know that you have found that and you certainly have also created your own actual home where you're surrounded in the beautiful energy of nature, which is even puts you that much further ahead of like the poor people that are in cities all the time and getting bombarded with all these different energies. At what point in your life got you pointed in this particular direction to where you could feel and experience that? Um, well, I've gone through different phases of it in my life where I sort of cycle in and out of it. I don't know if you've had that experience. Yeah, 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 yeah. There are times where I definitely get lost. There's no question about that. <laughs> but I would say that it really solidified and took root most solidly after having my partner leave me about um, 15, 16, 17 years ago. I was really devastated and it caused so much internal emotional pain and strife that it, uh, I guess it catalyzed a movement in the opposite direction. Like I came to realize that despite the pain, despite the discomfort and the hurt and the, you know, the feeling of that experience, I did not want to close my heart. I didn't want to allow anything in this world to shut down the delicious beauty of experiencing the world through an open heart. Mm. So I think that's an experience, that's an example of, of having pain be a profound teacher in a very perhaps unexpected way, unexpected for those who have not gone through that, but for those of us who have actually gone through that kind of alchemical transformation of pain into joy and and that kind of exquisite experience of the possibility of life, um, we know that that's often the way it works. And was there a suddenness, and don't need to get into the story per se, 
because I know this has happened, the same thing for me. There was a suddenness of an end of a relationship that left me with a kind of what happened. And I was so vulnerable at that point because all the things that I thought I knew, clearly I didn't. And there was a richness in that of like, oh, I really have to start like rebuilding the world in a, a way I've never understood before. Oh, I'm still doing that. It's like this is a long, lifelong, ongoing integration process of this, of everything. Yeah. And investigation, self-inquiry, and inner reflection at the same time that I'm, I'm engaging in the world around me. Yeah, yeah. And this has all been done on your own because it's not like, you know, like in my case, um, I had partners that really didn't have any interest in at least even you know, talking about the denouement of the relationship and just trying at least to understand, so what were the dynamics that happened and then just continue on with our lives, whatever, and not getting back together. Nobody was interested in that kind of thing. And that was part of the pain for me. It was like, wow, I'm, I'm back here on this deserted island, just like in my childhood, and I get to have to try and figure it out all by myself. Was that the case for you as well? Well, I've gone through numerous rounds of that in my life, and that's why I think at that juncture that I, I just, just described, I had come to the, the realization inside myself that I did not want to return to that island again. I wanted to keep the doors open, no matter how painful that it, the possibilities of experiencing the world around me could be, particularly yeah. engaging in open-hearted connection and intimacy with others and the world around because when you're really open-hearted and you deeply care when you you see people in the world suffering it can be tremendously painful oh yeah yeah those are my tears last week every time i think about people in ukraine and also think about the sheer courage of those people that you know that are fighting for their freedom because they said you know there really isn't any other option for us I just, you know, last week I would just go straight to tears and going like, you know, I don't have a clue the strength of this kind of thing. These people are like my heroes right now, heroes and heroines, what they are doing at the moment. Well, yeah, in a way they are because they're living out the battle or the struggle that we are just dealing with on an internal level. Yes, yes. Yeah, and it really is. It's it's it is a struggle for the life of the soul because they know that freedom once they once you've tasted it, there really isn't you know the other options of repression and all really aren't real options. Of, you know, it's like I'd rather die than do do that kind of thing. And I so admire people. I mean, Martin Luther King had that quote that, and he put it in these were his words. You know, that if a man doesn't have something that's worth dying for then he's not sure how much they really are alive. You know, I so admire people that are willing, and it can be for an idea, it doesn't have to be physical harm, but that there's a passion in their life that means everything to them. I mean, is, and I don't know if you got to see the film Coda, which just won, you know, the Academy Award. We had talked about this before, you know, for this, this young woman in the film, you know, her parents and her brother are all deaf, and she really... For her, singing was everything. She had to do what she had to do to get to this place for singing because even though she had this other obligation to her family, 
you know, to translate for them, you know, to the hearing world, she really had to struggle for this. And, you know, it's just done so beautifully. And just, again, I was so delighted that it won the Academy Award because it had such heart. And it's like, this is what we need more of today. Yeah, we sure do. And uh, it's a wonderful blessing for those of us who've been able to open our hearts to experience that and recognize that. And those people like your siblings who have suffered but have not been blessed with the experience of having their heart opened by it, um, that's sad. You know, it, it is sad. And, you know, I have the contrast. I'm very close. I have my closest sibling in terms of just connection is a sister who's two years older than me. She's deaf. And that's where there was part of the, the Coda film really came in for me because, you know, I was like getting to experience her world. Anyhow, through her handicap, this is what's been interesting. Her compassion to the world and her connection to the world is so incredible. And I just love being near her and with her. And she just has a very natural sense of, you know, how to be in the world and how to lead with her heart and not with her head. And it's just incredible. She is so full of life and full of joy. I love her, Tonio. Yeah, it's, it's just so wonderful to have people like that in the world as models. And I think, though, you know, it's interesting that when when people have these traumas, of course, like we mentioned, there are those choices. But there's that other choice of if you've had and it doesn't matter whether it's been psychological, emotional, physical, whatever kind of trauma that has happened to you, a handicap, that it really does make you more aware of feeling sense of the world. And, you know, that once you have that sense of what it feels like to suffer what it feels like to be vulnerable, what it feels like to be fragile, doesn't take a lot of imagination when you see somebody else going through that and going like, well, I can feel that. And, you know, again, if it's appropriate, it's like, is there something I can do to help? Is there something that like, can I just go over and stand near that person? Or like, if nothing else, it's like the same thing with Ukraine. If nothing else, at least I can pray. And, you know, may there be peace there. And, who knows if that's making a difference or not. Yep. Yep. And if you enjoy this kind of conversation, this kind of engagement on the radio, on this station, please support us. Go to WGDR.org and make a secure donation to support this station so that we can continue to bring this kind of grassroots, spontaneous, personally creative, programming, stuff you certainly won't hear on commercial radio and probably won't hear most other places. Lovely. And I hope people do support. Actually, I'm a supporter of this very radio station and I live in New Mexico. I'm also a supporter of my local public station. Uh, you know, the work that I do at my commercial radio station, I don't get paid. Uh, <laughs> it's all fine because I'm doing what I think I should be doing. Ponyo, I have one, a, a short poem that actually a swimmer turned on to me recently, which is really for this moment where we are. Do you have time for it? Absolutely. I always this have time is, for a poem. <laughs> this is Wendell Berry. 
And he has a, a little thing. This is to his granddaughters who visited the Holocaust Museum on the day of the burial of Isaac Rabin, November 6, 1995. The name of the poem is, Now You Know the Worst. Now you know the worst we humans have to know about ourselves. And I am sorry, for I know you will be afraid. To those of our bodies given without pity to be burned, I know there is no answer but loving one another, even our enemies. And this is hard. But remember, when a man of war becomes a man of peace, he gives a light, divine though is also human. When a man of peace is killed by a man of war, he gives a light. You do not have to walk in darkness. If you have the courage for love, you may walk in light. You will be the light of those who have suffered for peace. It will be your light. That is so beautiful and so appropriate for this time. Yes, that was the poem I finished the show on, on the obsolescence of war. That's how I finished it, because, you know, it can be very despairing and discouraging in terms of what's going on in the world. And I think that these reminders, just like these conversations that you do, Tonio, which is how can more light be brought into the world? And I'm, of course, speaking figuratively and metaphorically, but I think also there is a literalness if that if we had, you know, it's interesting in that an interview I was listening to the one with John O'Donohue, he was talking about a certain kind of spiritual evolution that if we got to a sensitivity, we could go to a place, for instance, and feel the history of what had happened in that particular landscape. And I think you and I had talked about this in the show a few times ago when we spoke about our presence in the world, that when we keep you know, refining whatever these rough stones that we are as human beings, we really do bring a light into the world. And it doesn't have to be a conscious, like I'm gonna go out and change the world or fix anything, but it really is a presence of being in the world and that is enough to change everything. Mm. So beautifully said. And that is a perfect, perfect note to end on. As perfect. always, thank you so much. It's always so wonderful to talk with you and to share, you know, bounce off each other and share our perspectives and ideas. My guest has been Rick Halterman. He's the author of Curriculum of the Soul, wonderful, wonderful book. If you haven't experienced it yet, I highly, highly recommend it. You can find it in the usual places. You can also get it directly from Rick from his website, which is curriculumofthesoul.com, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And then there's a new book too, which really kind of further explores. It's called Luminescence of the Ordinary, and that's at luminescenceordinary.com. And I'd be happy to send you a book, happy to sign it for you. But the main thing is thank you so much for listening. And Tonio, what a pleasure to have you as a soul brother. Yes, it's what a wonderful discovery to find you on the planet at this time. <laughs> as it is for me. You have a great day out there. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
our spring fundraiser, which will be ending this Sunday. And we still have a ways to go to reach our goal of raising $8,000. So if you haven't yet donated to our spring fund drive, please go to wgdr.org right now and make a secure and generous donation to help support Central Vermont Community Radio, real grassroots community radio by the community for the community. And thank you so much. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.